Hi, everyone. This is Javier, your host here at the Restore Podcast. We would love to hear your thoughts about the Restore Podcast topics, guests, your favorite episodes, or whatever you may want to let us know. And I am so happy to announce that now you can do that simply by texting us by going to the show notes. There, you will see a link that simply says, send us a text message. Click on it. Don't remove the number there that you will see and simply send us a text. Simple as that. So don't wait. Go to any episode show notes and text us now. Let us know your thoughts. We can't wait to hear from you. God bless. Welcome to Restore, a podcast seeking to restore the vision, restore the mission, restore the church. And now your host, Javier Diaz. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Restore Podcast, episode 38. My name is Javier, and I'm your host. As always, thanks for listening and sharing the Restore Podcast. It's our constant desire, as you've often heard me say, to help restore the vision, restore the mission, restore the church to what God would want it to be, and that is an ongoing journey. On today's episode, I had the pleasure and honor of interviewing Dr. Michael Campbell, Associate Professor in the School of Religion at Southwestern Adventist University. His book, entitled 1919, The Untold Story of Adventism's Struggle with Fundamentalism, was released essentially on the 100-year anniversary of the said 1919 Bible Conference the book speaks about. Many within our community of faith, and I would venture to, to say many who listen to this podcast, would have heard of and understood the importance of the 1919 Bible Conference in the history of our church. As the book mentions, today, the Seventh-day Adventist Church continues to grapple with issues raised at this epical event. Now, even if you've never heard of the 1919 Bible Conference, I highly hope that you will still listen to this episode, share the episode, uh, because I think that you will find it fascinating. And even more so, I pray that you uh, buy the book, because uh, I think that it, it he does an incredible job at truly putting out an easy way for all to understand the history and main issues of the 1919 Bible Conference, along with its implications for us today. I, of course, again, highly recommend the book, and we will be giving away um, a few at the end of the podcast. I'll let you know how you can possibly get one. A very important note before we proceed forward. I really appreciate Michael's time and patience as we had some serious technical difficulties in our recording. And basically it happened all the way through. And due to our schedules, it, it was hard for us to reschedule um, a time where we can record the episode. So with that said, we just plead for your patience. Um, I really want to thank Lee. He is our editor and does and has been doing all the editing for the Restore podcast on the, on the uh, technical side. And so thank you so much. I think he did a great job. And being able to put it all together so that we can release this episode. Um, again, thank you guys for your patience. Nonetheless, with that said, and that understood, I believe that you will be highly blessed in my conversation with Dr. Michael Campbell. Dr. Michael Campbell, thank you for uh, being on the Resort Podcast. Welcome. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, Michael, um, I'm excited uh, to be able to dig deep into uh, the book that you just wrote. But before we get into that, as we normally 
uh, do here on the podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself so that people know who you are, those that may not know who you are, and uh, where you come from, your family, your faith, uh, you know, journey, and uh, where you currently work. So just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks, Javier. I, you know, I actually was born here in Texas to Canadian parents. I'm sort of a Canadian American. And uh, that's kind of that just in the last year, uh, we've come back stateside after being missionaries for five and a half years in the Philippines. And uh, currently uh, teaching uh, mostly church history and theology at Southwestern Adventist University in King, which is just a little outside of Fort Worth. uh, A little bit about my own formative spiritual experience is um, my my family. We're kind of basically fairly secular, uh, but maybe perhaps you might say searching. Uh, And then as I was growing up, uh, my mom went to a neighborhood Bible study group. And I remember giving my heart to Jesus Christ when I was nine years old. And uh, all those Bible studies, uh, the leader of the Bible study group moved into me. And that left an opportunity for one of the ladies who was Adventist. And so uh, they took that as a challenge to straighten this poor Adventist lady out. Well, she said, well, my husband's a pastor. He wouldn't mind helping out with the Bible study. And it turns out he was a Catholic. And uh, I guess you can see who got straightened out. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, and soon after that, and he felt a time in my heart for ministry. Uh, and just knew after that, 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 that God had called me to go and serve. And so it's in my heart, deep within my heart, I always sense the call of passion for, for ministry, for pastoral ministry, for serving. Um, but also during my teenage years, I uh, became very interested in Adventist history. Because part of that related to the great controversy, but uh, meeting some uh, pivotal individuals in my life, one of them being Myrtle Maxwell, a consummate storyteller uh, at the seminary from uh, yesteryear, uh, and just starting to catch a little bit of this color for how the passion of our early pioneers were uh, and how God was able to work in their lives. And God works through old people. And so that kind of, I guess, inspired me that if God could do that in our past, he could continue doing that. And I just, I like history, not for the facts and truth so much for the Stories and um, that that was deepened through my my teenage years. And by the time I I went to Southern, I, I just knew that that Adventist history was was sort of like my calling. Um, and so yeah, so I went right on through my uh, Southern studying theology and history, double major. Went on to seminary. Talked to just briefly before starting this podcast, uh, George Knight, under Cam. He was sort of the 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 pivotal influence. I was thinking several different paths in terms of graduate school, but uh, Dr. Knight called me one day and really implored me to, to, to head up to Andrews and to study with him and also to work on the Ellen Wilm Encyclopedia with Jerry Moon and Dean 410. So they also became very formative in my experience. Um, after that, I finished up my dissertation while working at Loma Linda, spent some time in ministry, and then um, uh, also spent equal amount of time overseas uh, in the mission field, you might say, which is everywhere, but in a more official sense, working for uh, the general conference. We've got three major seminaries, centers of theological education, Andrews, then Adventist University of Africa in Kenya, 
and then in the Philippines, the um, Adventist International Institute of Advanced Studies, and so it's great privilege for us to spend some time in a cross-cultural context with students from um, sometimes every student would be from a different country, and that gives you a little bit of a great, the global scope of Adventism. Uh, and it was just a great, fun experience for a family. We have just uh, look back at our time at ICE with uh, very fondly. Uh, and then as our kids have gotten older, kind of started thinking, you know, it'd be great for them to uh, come back stateside in terms of their education. And so um, just uh, started praying and uh, it just seemed great clear. The Lord was leading us to Southwestern and just had an absolute blast. And um, the other thing that we we're praying about is my wife would be able to pursue her education. And God worked out uh, something really neat and he's um, going to be taking uh, or is just starting her PhD program in history at Baylor. So uh, kind of history okay. uh, runs in the family. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, wow. How many uh, how many kids do you have? We have two children, Emma and David. And um, okay. kind of a story they like to tell is uh, right before we got the call from the general conference that uh, my wife and I said, you know, we ought to pray with the kids and talk about this. And remember when we approached them, they just had these things absolute horror on their faces. And uh, they said, oh, mom and dad, why would God send us to the land of the, the Philistines? And we reassure them, you could to the land of the Philippines and there are no giants here. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, um, this is going to be, that story right there is going to be one of many you're about to tell us, I, I believe, when it comes to uh, the book that you ended up writing. And um, so, but thank you for telling us a little bit about your journey. Um, I just always love, and I'm noticing that uh, many of those that listen to the Restore podcast, they, they like to know it is uh, that's on the podcast. They oftentimes they know, at least the listeners know some of who um, is that I'm interviewing, but it's, it's, it's great to just get to know them a little bit better and their journey and have them say it in their own words. And so thank you for that. And as we, as you mentioned, we talked about before beginning our recording that you and I crossed paths at Southern and uh, I'll just go ahead and say it is that I mentioned this to you before is that you were already known. And I had, I think it was my, as soon as I got there, like within the first year, um, somebody told me, yeah, he's that church history guy. And I guess maybe this individual didn't know you that well either, but they know, they knew of you, that you were the guy that just loved church history and like uh, you were the next church historian. And sure enough, here you are, um, how God has blessed. So praise God for that. And so uh, thank you for uh, doing what you do to be able to tell the history of our church in ways that um, help us. And I'm going to use the pun here to help us continue to restore the vision and the mission and that the church has. And so obviously this is perfect for this podcast. So with that said, let's get right into the, into the book. Um, why did you write um, 1990, the untold story of Adventism struggle with fundamentalism? So as soon as the book came out, I'm like, okay, well, I enjoy church history. So I've read the book and I know others already are like, 
I think I don't know if it's the 1919 Bible Conference or just that you use the word fundamentalism in the, in the title, so people want to read it. I don't know. Um, and he's laughing, by the way. You guys can't see him obviously, but he's laughing as I'm saying this. But tell us, tell us first, why did you decide to even write this book? Why, why write a whole book and um, about it? And you do mention it, of course, in the book itself. But tell us here in the podcast. Well, you know the. the I first came across the topic of the 1919 Bible Conference when, when we were there at Southern and being in the seat history class, we had a, a professor there, Ben McArthur, and he liked to challenge us. And I remember in the senior history methods class, he had us read the pivotal discussions about Ellen White that were published in Spectrum. And although I loved Adventist history and had a passion for this and, and all the white and what have you. Um, this was something very new to me. And soon I realized that this is something I or bite my teeth on this and really wrestle with it. And I think part of it had to do um, both with, you know, as you're coming of age and maturing as, as a student in college, but also my own personal experience of, of interacting with a lot of people within the Adventist church where, uh, the, the issue or the topic of, of fundamentalism was a very relevant one that I believe that the Adventist Church, both when I was a student in college as well as historically, and I would even say now is continuing to struggle with. Um, I, I, I think it's important to, before you say anything else, we have to define fundamentalism. Well, a lot of people have done that in different ways. Uh, in case you'll hear people banter around, oh, that person's a fundamentalist. And, and usually when they're doing that, it's in a pejorative sense. Like uh, we're talking about uh, Islam, a fundamentalist extremist, uh, maybe had the suicide bomber blows himself up. And, and, and we have to be careful to define right up front. Um, that's not how I'm using the term fundamentalist. I'm not using it in a pejorative sense in any way. Uh, but, but usually um, we're referring to the historical fundamentalist movement, which was the conservative Christian reaction in the late 19th, early 20th century to the rise of several different challenges that were confronting Christianity, uh, modernism, uh, the sort of positivism that is this optimistic view of the world that we can figure everything out in evolution, um, sort of these naturalistic explanations of Christianity, uh, and then even challenges to the authority of scripture through the historical critical method that the Bible's not really inspired. And so within Christianity, there's sort of this very conservative reaction um, towards this saying, this is not the direction we need to head. But when I'm talking about fundamentalism on this podcast with you here today, what I'm talking about is the historical fundamentalist movement, the distinct movement within uh, Protestant Christianity here in North America. And, and so that has to be the context. And I'm very clear about that. Um, with that being said, um, some of the issues raised by the fundamentalists, Adventists right away resonated with, and some of the right. other issues, um, um, Adventism found to be very troubling. And I am basically in arguing in my book, in my research, that in, in a nutshell, the issues raised by fundamentalism basically define more theological controversies within the Seventh-day Adventist Church, both in 1990 and for the past century. Um, the topics and issues change. We'll talk about some of that later on, but 
that really involves issues. And, and I think underneath that is a way of interpreting inspired writings. We like to use a fancy term, hermeneutics, but the two different approaches. And it's the first time in Adventist history you see people bantering about terms like conservatives versus the liberals. I don't know what pastor can't relate to that, where you have people in your congregation that may, you know, banter around these kinds of terms. And and maybe even there's more conservative churches versus more progressive or liberal churches or more conservative versus liberal pastors and these sorts of elements. There's a tendency within human nature that we like to label things. And, and I find that process of labeling to be very counterproductive and challenging for reasons I'm sure we're going to talk more about later on in this podcast. But, but on the most fundamental level, I think how we interpret inspired writings and the danger of polarization to me is why the 1919 Bible Conference has incredible value for the Adventist church today and especially for Adventist pastors. Well, I'm so glad that you jumped right into it, and that's awesome. And uh, thank you for describing and really expanding on when we use the word fundamentalism. And when I say we, and we're discussing it, it um, if you are talking about it in your book, it's, as you mentioned, and I'm just going to let people rewind and let them listen to, or, you know, go back and let them listen to your explanation, because that's key uh, to yeah. those who perhaps have not read the book and listened to this podcast. Uh, for them yeah. to understand what you what you mean by that, as you're, uh, you know, delineating everything in the book. Let me back up for a second before we get into some of the specifics, and uh, you you've already kind of hinted at that. Uh, part part of the 1990 Bible Conference was, as you mentioned, is when the Adventist Church really begins. And you correct me here. I'm I, I love history, but you're the history professor, so feel free anytime to jump in and say, "No, that's wrong. That's right." So. I'm okay with that. Um, and But um, the 1919 Bible Conference was really, as you alluded to and mentioned, the first time we can say in which there begins to be this, this conversation, to say the least, at a, can I say, theological, academic way of these two differences of seeing how the Bible is interpreted, how Felon White is interpreted, and how the Adventist Church begins to wrestle with that just four years after her death, Ellen White died in 1915. Um, and so this, this is in part why it was, and still is, a very um, important conference in the history of our church. So, but before we dive even further into that, let me back up. Talk to us a little bit about how they were found, right? And so that's a fascinating story. It's almost like a movie. And you tell a story in the book that, to me, it was just absolutely fascinating. Never heard of that story in any of my history classes. I don't know if you want to get into that, but just I'm just put that promo out there for you for people to buy the book and read it because that story is really interesting. Um, uh, but with that said, do tell us how these um, how this information was found, the transcripts, I should say, um, and the fact that Spectrum an independent uh, website, magazine, you know, ministry, put it out there. So give us a little bit of that background, and then we'll jump back into the specifics of the conference. Well, yeah, you know, 
this is important always is there's the story that's told the story behind the story historians we like to call that historiography how how people interpret things and how people have interpreted things over time changes uh whether we realize that or not and uh you know the 1919 bible conference was simply not something significant enough that people felt as they had to make these sort of memory statements. It was certainly a controversial meeting. It was a significant meeting, uh, but it just there's, there weren't a lot of records. It's not, you know, the participants didn't, before they died, said, you know, I was at the 1919 Bible conference, and I just have to right. leave the, the statement behind about what my experience was like. And so... Um, that creates a little bit of a challenge because some of history realize it's important. You know, 1888 was also a controversial moment in our past, but, and, and people realize, hey, well, that was clearly a turning point. 1919 is a little bit different where it's not until after the passing of time that people realize the significance. Uh, and, and really that significance was discovered almost by accident when you want some people uh, like Donald Yost, who's tasked with organizing literally tons of boxes of archival materials, letters, junk, you name it, in the basement of the General Conference. And so there's sort of a, a during the 1960s, early 70s, where there's sort of a, a pulse within Adventism that we need to be more professional, more organized, more bureaucratic, if you please. And, and Donald Yost, who uh, was in charge of doing that, uh, Donald Mansell, who was one of the associate directors of the Long Estate, he had noticed in the Review and Herald that there were references to a Bible conference. It wasn't like it was totally secret. There were published accounts, the official accounts afterwards. So he kind of told Donald Yost, and I found this out by talking to both of them, well, to please keep an eye out. And so one day, Donald Yost stumbles on these minutes in a box. And then realizes, oh, um, you know, we had found what Donald Mansell's work what was looking for. And as the two of them are supposed to go through and read the transcripts, both of them uh, told me that this was, this was very significant. They realized what they had, and in particular, the discussions about Ellen White at the end. And uh, word about such, such a significant discovery um, was amplified because the Adventist church during the 70s was starting to face some major challenges about inspiration, things like that, in which they realized that there was a much earlier generation that had had candid discussions about hermeneutics, but in particular about how that applied to the interpretation and authority of Ellen White's writings. And so um, they're on a treasure trove and they realized that on something significant. Uh, it began to circulate among a small group of historians. One person leaked it to Spectrum, and of course, he took the most significant things right at the end. We'll publish that, and probably what was the, I would argue, was the most significant issue that was ever published by Spectrum. Well, I can't tell you how many church leaders I talked to were um, that that felt like a bombshell among. Um, Adventist intellectuals and church leaders who realized hey, this is this is pretty huge. So uh, once that information gets out there, um, uh, 
And, and, and that really alerted a lot of people that there was more to the story of how to interpret Ellen White than what may meet the eye. There, there's a, a deeper story, on, a more complex story and more nuance there that needed to be explored. So really the 1919 Bible Conference, it's again, but the dawning of consciousness, recognizing its significance uh, takes place uh, once those are published. Um, of course, people at church think we were a little bit chagrined. How did this get out? How did that get out of the bag? Uh, and of course, Roy Branson, who was then the editor of Spectrum, uh, he knew what he was doing very clearly. He, he, he expressed uh, that. Uh, but he also kind of wryly at the very end said, nobody told me that I wasn't supposed to publish it either. So, <laughs> and this was, and this was before social media, this was before, um, can I say email as well? Right. I mean, this before all of us, this is just right. Right. So he presumably, I think even maybe mimeographed, you know, where, you know, someone had clearly, uh, taken the time. And, and so instead of it coming out, I, I, I got a sense from Don Yost and Don Mansell that they were planning to circulate and keep copies in different archives. And so then if other researchers stumbled across it, then they'd know about it. Uh, but that's sort of a controlled, very delayed release. I, I think, you know, in light of the conversations going on with Adventists, people knew uh, when it really got out through Spectrum, you know, here, this was... This was dynamite, and uh, this was <laughs> so. So, Spectrum. Um, what year did Spectrum publish this? Um, uh, the my, it was nineteen seventy nine. So, even by the time okay, it, we're talking about five years later. So, they had had time to release it uh, a little bit more intentionally. So, uh, there is that aspect where obviously. Um, so people were uh, sitting on it, recognizing the sensitivity of it. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, thank, thank you for refreshing me on that date when it was released. Uh, so Spectrum publishes this. It's, uh, as you and using your words, I know you recently, I read it in, um, in, in the interview that you had with Spectrum, and you mentioned it there. And the, the, the beauty of this all, too, is that you had firsthand conversations with um all of the people that were involved um, in all of this. That, was that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I was fortunate enough. Okay. I did a lot of my research. I could still, there was still time. And so I have notes in my file, um, in my files on, on some of those things. And even some of the phone conversations where I'm, I'm jotting it down where, you know, today we can easily record, but you know, I kind of interview and just take notes with different people. Uh, and I even remember going to Neil Wilson, who wrote, you know, and our church president uh, at that time, yeah. he clearly recognized, hey, this was this was pretty huge on this broke loose. Um, number of people in the state, Ronson Poon, and other influential thought leaders from the late 70s, early 80s. So uh, people realized, hey, there's, again, there's more nuance to our bills. Uh, and I think George Knight does a good job. He, he's, he's, most recent book, Ellen White's Afterlife, which is uh, really quite a uh, significant book. I think a lot of Adventists should take the time to read that are listening to this podcast. Uh, that was actually first a address, a keynote address that he gave for Arias when we were there for the centennial of Ellen White's death. And in 2015, Dr. Knight came out and spoke and 
we published a uh, one of our shorter version of that same essay, which he's expanded and now added additional information. But but one of the things he the points he makes in that book is basically, uh, I think, argues very effectively that we haven't done a very good job in the twentieth century at interpreting Ellen White and really understanding the, what Herman is all about. And there's sort of this moment at the end of the 1919 transcripts and these dynamite conversations that were published in Spectrum, kind of the, 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 the ones we're talking about here, where there's sort of one of the, the participants actually says this, if we don't, basically, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but we won't do a better job educating our trips members, well, we're going to have some significant trouble in the future. And I think George Knight, in his book, um, Afterlife, Afterlife, makes that point that uh, we have really struggled on this issue through the 20th century. And in the 70s is kind of where we're really um, having to come to terms with how do we interpret inspired writings, particularly on White's writings. So we're having this sort of deja vu moment where we're kind of going back and, and realizing, hey, we're not the first ones to struggle with this and uh, recognize that once again, that there's more to the story. There's more complexity that's that's here. So it's, I mean, to me, this is again fascinating because I, I I enjoy history and I want to continue to want to learn more. Uh, yeah. And I, as I as I see it, the, the 1919 Bible Conference becomes public in a way that it didn't before, as you mentioned. Um, Inspector releases the transcripts. Uh, and then the church begins to struggle to be able to interpret what it all meant. And so this is when historians start to really look into it and all of that throughout the course of many years. Um, so tell us a little bit about, uh, with that said, uh, the major points of the 1919 Bible Conference. Um, you've already touched on a few, but let's kind of um, point them out one by one. Uh, but start, if you could, with what was this conference about? It, it really, I didn't know um, how long it lasted. So that was really interesting. I mean, these conferences were not just a, a few days or a week, right? They were like a month or three yeah. weeks a month. So tell us a little bit about that, right? So where was it held? How long did it last? Who attended? Just Give us a synopsis of that. Obviously, we don't need to know every single name, but it's important for people who have not read the book, don't know too much about the 1919 Bible Conference to kind of get a uh, a little bit of a background of what is transpiring leading up to the informing conversations that we've already touched on somewhat. Yeah, well, you know, with Adventism, we have a rich tradition of Bible conferences. Like, what's the fact that we're seeing them holding a Bible conference doesn't really see to stand out that much. Our church was founded in the very earliest years. There's quite a few, um, we call them Sabbath and sanctuary conferences. Um, but as the church progressed, it's really called uh, theological education. So it's kind of late. Yeah, in the 20th century, we've had like three defining Bible conferences basically about one generation in which they really focus on major issues within the field. As early as 1913 that I found, our churches are recognizing that we can 
need as a church to have such a meeting, such a gathering. What our top theologians, our editors, our administrators, they can all together. And we're also read the opening address by each of the audience, right? So they get ready to start for the next five weeks. There's kind of two major things that stand out to me. One of them is they realize that we think about a lot of uh, diversity in terms of how we interpret, especially during time events. Now, this is significant because 1913, they start calling for a Bible conference, but something happens. That's because from 1914 to 1918, or, you know, about a four, four and a half year period, World War I takes place, the, the Great War, as it's called. And so with rations and travel restrictions, it wasn't possible to have a Bible conference. Uh, and during the war, it's also interesting that what we did out this podcast talking about the rise in historical fundamentalist movement, they did something incredible. They began holding prophecy conferences about the soon return of Jesus. And, and these are not Adventists. So this is right. These are not Adventists. <laughs> and they're holding mega conferences in some of the largest cities in the United States. And um, having mass turnouts and people are realizing Jesus is coming again. And what happens when the fundamentalists basically are, or what become known as fundamental, the fundamentalists, what happens when they are doing a better job than we are about warning the world about from soon to care? And so there's a little bit of envy there. And so our church leaders, our top church leaders, send these representatives. And we're not talking about obscure ministerial interns. We're talking about the editor of the few um, top church leaders to attend these major prophecy conferences and report on them on the front page of the review. So, so in, in fact, they describe them to fellow Adventists as one of the most significant events in church history. The problem is these guys have just a few other things not worked out right. They don't believe Sabbath and but once they figure those things out, that that adult, that, that of course they're going to want to become Adventist, and so they see this as a sort of revival that's going to precede the soon return of Christ. And, and this precipitate uh, and A.G. Daniels shares about his experience. He actually meets with William B. Riley, one of the fundamentalists in the country, on one of his cross-country trips because he's so intrigued by this. And he's like, he prophecy conferences as a model for what Adventists should do. And so basically what he sees Adventism as needing to unify and stop fighting over little minuscule details, work out these eschatological differences. And basically there's sort of an attitude that we can walk all over our top church thought leaders and administrators in a room for five weeks that once they're done, everyone's going to be united and we'll finish the work. And this will bring in an usher in the eschaton. And so there's this sort of this, this optimism that we just need to unite. Uh, and so most of the 1995 Bible conference is built with very mundane kind of topics, uh, like, uh, what was the date? All 38. Is that the most historically accurate date? Well, Prescott, being a researcher that he was, he's reading a number of other historians that are saying, well, look at Bible 43. Well, at the end of the day, it really doesn't make that much difference from his viewpoint because we're still on the time at the end, whether the final combination 1793 or 1798. Uh, 
But Cherokee is beginning to challenge some of these established states. First, you know, Daniel 11, we fought over Daniel 11. Um, we had all kinds of freedom interpretations uh, from the time of William Miller up to the present. In fact, I had someone stop by my office this last week that i rather misguided. Uh, believes he wants the truth on Daniel 11. He's had suspicions. Well, uh, it's always curious all of the very fanciful interpretations that we had on that. Uh, and, and again, the king of the north, king of the south from Daniel 11, that's a hotly contested topic. And it's especially a hotly contested topic for the reason that during World War I, all traditional expositors have been following Darius Smith for the 19th century, saying it's going to be Turkey, it's going to be Turkey. And then, of course, uh, the Ottoman Empire falls apart, it's obliterated. And uh, Adventist interpreters of Bible prophecy that perhaps have been a little too hasty realized that, you know, uh, they're a bit embarrassed that, hey, we kind of jumped the gun on this one. That's not going to, that's not going to work anymore. And recognizing these kinds of problems, eschatological problems, become sort of the immediate impetus for our church leaders to kind of circle the wagons and let's get together our top now this is actually quite unique from other bible conferences forward to this in that we begin to see a number of individuals at least off the top of my head i think there's five that i recall that have significant graduate level training we're talking in history and historiography and biblical languages uh in top universities in the country like Johns Hopkins, the University of Chicago. Right? And we've never had such a highly trained group of, of thought leaders. And so the 65 people who gather together really represent the very cunning edge, the very best that Adventism has to offer and, and bringing those people together. And that creates sort of the, the backbone, the, the setting for well, uh, this very crucial conversation of Christians about what we believe. And as people are duking it out, um, I'll never forget, I, the, one of the funniest parts in the transcripts to me is H. Daniels. He's so tired of people fighting over the king of the Newark, the king of the South. He just says, I wish I could take that and throw it all in a hot air balloon and let it float away. <laughs> and for those that may not know, H. Daniels is who he's uh, and I thank you for reminding me he's our church president and by the way okay there's something yeah he's at the 1919 bible conference in fact I think he's a little bit chagrined because here he is bringing this conference that he hopes will usher in a whole series of bible conference we can bring unity and bring on the usher in the eschaton and we'll hear everything's getting bogged down in a quagmire of controversy and it's so much so that he says, you know, no more talking about the king of the north and the king of the south unless he's in the room in Cherry Recession. Because uh, he's talking yeah. all the controversy and, and everything else. And so uh, so he's trying to, uh, although he is basically the one that's more responsible than anyone else for the 1990 Bible conference happening, uh, I think he's rather chagrined that here in the midst of this, just getting really bogged down in. Of fighting one another at this meeting, yeah. and uh, this is a challenge. So, 
so the Bible, so, so it's really, again, it's, um, there's a lot to encapsulate there, what you said. So, but essentially the Bible conferences, what I'm hearing you say, and of course, from the book that I read, it's, it's coming from the culture at that time within, in which Adventism was, right? So you have this uprising from the mainland churches having this uprising of conferences of their own, or I should say meetings, these big meetings about the second coming of all things, right? Of course, the second coming of Jesus, you have uh, the world war happening. And, and so it's really interesting because now from the president, Daniels on down, the hierarchy of the conference is actually looking at this and saying, we need to take advantage of this, right? Which is, which is really interesting for the time. And so Adams, out of all that, just to kind of summarize to some degree, they, they hold this, this Bible conference, which is also was a teacher's conference, if I'm not mistaken, right? It was also, so part of it, it was like the first part was the Bible conference. And the last part was, was supposed to be with the teachers at that time or some of the top teachers in our, uh, you know, universities for that time. So a quick snapshot, how long was the, in total, was the conference, the, 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 the two ends of it? When did it start? When did it finish? Yeah, good question. It started on July 1st. So just uh, less than a week ago is exactly the 100 year anniversary of yeah. the opening maintenance Bible conference. Kind of, that's kind of, uh, I had to pinch myself and sent little chills down my spine to realize, hey, this is the, the actual moment of when uh, this particular episode uh, occurred. And it lasted for just approximately five weeks. The first three weeks of which was the Bible conference and the teachers conference. So we have everyone together for the Bible conference. And there were a few sessions, usually at least one session a day that was sort of pedagogical, it's focused on the teachers and how to be a better teacher kind of thing. And, and then the teachers stayed for basically about two weeks afterwards because, hey, if you got everybody there and all that expense, let's use this as sort of an in-service teachers training, which I think every conference does, you know, uh, even to this day. Uh, and so this is sort of, uh, and, and so when the teachers get together and they have these very candid discussions about Ellen White, it's out of the context of the overall Bible conference and all the previous meetings that set the stage. Uh, I, I think kind of two things. One of them is the point that it, that you were mentioning that pretty much everybody that was having this at the Lincoln Bible Conference saw the, what becomes known as the rising fundamentalist movement. And I say that because fundamentalist isn't really used as a term for this movement until the, the term is coined in 1922 by Curtis E. Laws. Uh, so, you know, the term is a little bit anachronistic, but for the sake of, of making the point, I'll, I'll use it. Uh, but the, the rising fundamentalist movement and, and basically, Daniels is coming along as our church president saying, we should be, paraphrase a little bit, the fundamentalists on the fundamentalists. Everybody saw fundamentalism as the solution to their problems with modernism and evolution and change. So the natural reaction is that we are against those same things. And so because we have a common, common enemy, therefore, we must be aligned together. And, and so this is what sets Adventism up because... On um, uh not only are the, the one aspect of fundamentalism, we talked about defining it earlier, or the premier scholar of fundamentalism is George Marsden, 
uh, most recently before he retired, taught at Notre Dame. And he decided, he kind of quipped one time, or quipped one time that this, a fundamentalist is someone is a conservative evangelical, basically, who's mad about something, right? So the fundamentalist, they're upset that culture is changing. They're upset about the unrest sparked by world conflict and war and the influenza pandemic. All these things are creating uncertainty, unrest in the sense that culture and society is rapidly changing. And a lot of those conservative values of a Christian nation that they perceive is rapidly eroding away into becoming very secular. And so they see that, okay, we have to do something to stop this uh, erosion from taking place. And so uh, pretty much everybody at the 1919 Bible Conference, they see this, you know, and they're looking at this and saying, this is the solution to our problems. We need to be basically become more fundamentalist. And uh, so this conference takes place. The fundamentalists are seen as the solution. And, um, but with that, they begin to discover that there's some problems. And that's, that's where we're going to head into here. So part of that discussion of that really was the bombshell, I guess you can say, that came out was how the church would interpret uh, the writings of Ellen White. And um, for those who may listen, who don't, well, who don't know who, well, almost everybody that listens to this podcast will know who Ellen White is. But in the sense of just the fact that we're having a conversation on how to interpret Ellen White, some of those that are not within our community of faith may find it, may find interesting of the fact that we're even having that conversation, right? But it it was not only today, but at that time, it was again only as I mentioned earlier, only four years since her death, um, and so they were really, really began to wrestle with this conversation. And the book fleshes out um, really the different thought processes of of how people viewed her, right as verbal inspiration, um, be infallible. Um, and then A.G. Daniel speaks um, against that, I guess you can say, in his own way, in his, his own conversations with that. So so as we flesh out these points, let me, let me just say, so part of the conversations were about how to interpret certain aspects of prophecy. And uh, you kind of touched on that for a little bit. Um, then it was, uh, the Trinity was also part of the discussion. Um, and so, those three points, along with interpreting Ellen White. So flush out for us, specifically interpreting Ellen White. I already mentioned a few things, but give us a little bit of, of what the back and forth was and why that was just and continues to be a conversation that was not only a bombshell when Spectrum releases it, but arguably even today, people still struggle with how to really understand and interpret the writings of Ellen White. Well, I'm glad you get to, it, be, to this point because this really becomes the, at the end of the day, the most significant aspect and what makes this conversation in 1919 and, and that uh, truly historic. Ellen White had died in 1915. How would the church cope without a living prophet? Now, I have a fun story in my book about Margaret Rowan. Uh, if you haven't heard of her before, you definitely want to read because that's that's that. Several people have told me, you know, that that's worth the price of the book alone. Um, just one of the great epic stories. And um, I'm kind of collecting them. One of my next books is going to be uh, a, a, basically looking at 10 stories 
of people who claim to have the prophetic gift. And so I and turned out to be basically um, bronze of different kinds. And so, um, because, there, and, and the reason that that's significant is because the church is traumatized. When you think of ancient Israel, you know, Moses dies. That was a traumatic moment to have a living prophetic voice following the church when there's crises and things like this. Um, at the end of the day, gives a little bit of reassurance that, hey, everything's going to be okay. Um, there's crucial conversations, crucial testimonies to church leaders, and yeah, the church makes mistakes and messes up, but here, Ellen White's still there. She's no longer around. And so this makes, I think, the church very vulnerable and susceptible. Uh, and that, that, I think, creates this tender moment for them to reflect upon the nature of the prophetic gift as manifested through all life. And so you have A.G. Daniels, who we've talked about, who had worked closely with Ellen White. We saw uh, James and Ellen White almost like parents to him, where they had mentored him as a young pastor, and he worked closely and saw himself as a champion of the gift of prophecy. And Ellen White obviously appreciated Daniels as well, because she sort of mentored him as he came into the church presidency in 1901 through the last 14 years of her life. And she also entrusted to him the, the to basically be the chair of the widest board of trustees as the custodian of her writing. So she obviously thought very highly of him too. And so here you have people like Daniels, but also others like Prescott who had worked with Ellen White on revising the great controversy. Ellen White trusted him to find better historical sources. And so they had worked with Ellen White. And so the, the challenge, the rub comes in because as they're debating all these other topics, suddenly you have this tendency, I think, within Adventism where people began to text Ellen White quotes. And so my position's right on this issue. <clears throat> and here's my list of quotes. And then the other side says, no, I'm the one that's right. And here's my list of quotes. And so they're appealing. First, they start vigorously studying the Bible, but then it's not too long before they, they start saying, well, no, let's use Ellen White to settle our conflict. And I guess, you know, mm -hmm. what church later, what pastor can't relate to that, or you have some controversy going on and you have two sides and they start pulling out their arsenal of Ellen White quotations. And and so this is, becomes a fundamental appeal to authority and how to interpret Ellen White. And so after the first major discussion of Ellen White early on in the conference, A.T. Daniels is, again, he's trying to be the referee. He says, time out, time out. Let's have a conversation. I'm going to tell you my experience with Ellen White. Now, we only know that happened because the very opening remarks are recorded by the uh, secretaries, the, the stenographers who are taking down the minutes, and he basically says, hey, stop recording. And they actually write that down. And so <laughs> um, this conversation that happened, we don't know the full extent of it, but Daniels was quite passionate about Ellen White's prophetic ministry, and he wrote a book on it later and wrote on it numerous times. So we have some idea uh, of the general gist uh, where he presumably would have shared his own experience, uh, probably his early ministry becomes uh, particularly poignant, as well as the Kellogg crisis when he was first a church president. And again, a very difficult time 
that Ellen White meant a great deal and um, at times admonished him, but he was able to grow through that. And so he obviously shares his experience. And it's at the very end when they're having just the teachers that they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We don't feel like we fully have discussed and we have these lingering questions. Uh, and so they, they, they call A.J. Daniels to come back. Now, he's a church president in both then as well as now. The general conference president is a pretty busy individual. So he comes back and he shares with them a little bit. Uh, and well, they say, well, we're not done yet. Can you come back one more time? And so that's these two crucial conversations about the authority and how to interpret Ellen White's writings at the very end. And, and basically, Daniels, along with our church leaders, recognized that with the rising fundamentalist movement, now they, they see that overall is a very good thing, but there's one aspect that's challenging, and that's this concept of inerrancy or how interpreting Ellen White's writings. Now, they agree the Bible's inspired and, and must be authoritative for us, but there's a little bit more they realize that where they are, I guess you'd say, at variance with the rising fundamentalist movement. Now, they see Adventism moving towards and embracing inerrancy uh, both because of the challenges at 1919 and some of those who were there and some of the earlier debates and discussions. But they also realize that if they don't do something now, it's worth educating the church, as I alluded to earlier, that we're going to have a huge problem in the future. And of course, that sort of lingering prediction there, it wasn't meant to quite be that, I suppose, but I spoke as is rather haunting in, in my psyche, you know, as I, as I, as a historian, look at the 20th century of Adventism, sure enough, this becomes a continued issue that lasts all the way up to the front. And in fact, I think that's really the bottom line why this book is significant for Adventism right now is we're, we're facing these same kinds of challenges over authority, over uh, interpretation, hermeneutics, uh, now the people have changed, the issues have changed, but at the end of the day, you see Adventism, it continues to struggle. And, and I'll, you know, just be very open with you, you know, our church, our big struggle that we've had the last 10 years is over women's ordination. Now, I'm not here to talk about that issue, but I would probe so far as to say that, again, I think the issue isn't really women's revolution. I think it's hermeneutics and how we interpret inspired writings, which leads to different viewpoints. And I, would, I don't want to oversimplify things because obviously there's cultural aspects and um, it's a very complicated issue on many different levels. But I think what is most helpful to me in wrestling with this is recognizing um, that at one level, that this really is and continues to be a hermeneutical uh, issue and an issue of authority, um, et cetera. So, Michael, let me, let me ask you a follow-up to that. When, hypothetically, let's say you, like you said, uh, in, as you were telling us your faith in our journey, you, you mentioned that uh, you spent some years pastoring, you spent some years as a missionary in um, the land of the Philippines, not the land of the Philistines, as your as your uh, sunset, but let's say you have a church member that is new to the faith, is learning, reading the writings of Ellen White, um, 
read Steps to Christ, Desire of Ages, you know, these books that are uh, fundamental, well-known within our community of faith. And yeah. how would you, with, with, with everything that you know, your knowledge, your, your in-depthness of history, way beyond mine, um, how would you explain all of this in a simple form, not simplistic, because it's not a simplistic matter, simple form, how would you explain to them the essence of how to interpret Ellen White, how to uh, understand um, when we read her, what that means to us, the difference between that inspiration and the inspiration of the Bible, if there's any, as somebody, I, I, you know, that was a conversation as well. So um, how, how would you flesh that out to, to, to that brand new church member coming in? That will also be helpful because that's really, in essence, like you said, this, the, the crux of the 1919 Bible Conference Along with the other topics, this was the, again, to use the word bombshell that, that everybody was like, whoa. And you mentioned something, I believe it was in the interview that I read in Spectrum a few weeks ago or a week ago or so, which uh, you said that, that for a time, people looked at the writings, and correct me again if I'm wrong, people looked at the writings of Ellen White as being, as her being a hundred years ahead of her time, that she was really a woman of her time. Is that is that fair to say that I say it correctly? Yeah, I, I, that's that's an excellent. Uh, well, since this podcast is for pastors, let me tell a pastor story. Okay, and then you're going to answer my question about how you would tell that new church member coming in, right? Okay. Yeah, and well, what I you know when I was a, a young pastor, I'll never forget. I had this church member that liked to regulate well, the potluck. <laughs> and so he would go through and give his nod of approval as to what was acceptable, what was not acceptable. My head deaconess, very helpful young lady, her husband was not a church member. And I, he would drop her off in the morning and then pick her up after church. And they lived close by the church. And so one day I saw him in the parking lot. I went out and knocked on his room door and said, hey, why don't you come on in? And he said, oh, I didn't know. I'm invited. I said, absolutely. He said, well, I couldn't just come in. Let me go home and grab the fish I'm cooking. And um, so I said, don't worry about it. I was thinking of a couple of church members that might have some issues. And so I decided to have a problem here, right? Uh, pastors like to, we try to avoid potential problems if we can. Oh, he's no, no, I and so he runs home, gets the the, the fish he's back about ten minutes later and and so I decided my my treats was talking about that's for the vegetarian potluck police. And so I decided I I needed to do the next best thing and that was to distract him, keep him occupied. And so I'm talking to him uh, and um after a few minutes, uh, the game was up, and starts, well, this note of request, I brought fish to potluck. And, uh, <laughs> and I decided that some, I had a holy boldness. I decided to go for the jugular, and I, I, I looked him in the eyes, and I said, what do you do with the fact that Jesus ate fish? <laughs> Look at me. And he said, but... Jesus didn't have all the truth. He didn't have <laughs> Ellen White. You see, if he'd had the spirit of prophecy, he would have known he's supposed to be budgetary. Have mercy, have mercy. And, wow. and 
think that's part of our problem is that we've somehow gotten things out of whack. Now, Ellen White had it correct. Mm-hmm. She understood her writings were a lesser light to lead men and women to the greater light, meaning the scripture, the Bible. And, um, but practice, not everybody, but occasionally and sometimes more than others. And I think, especially within those historically those, uh, drifted towards what you might say an Adventist version of fundamentalism, they're called reversal of that, where meetings are like, want to interpret the Bible. Now, I've fully, I love and I'm passionate about writings, but I think Ellen White would be bored by that. Uh, she did not see that as her primary purpose to be some kind of uh, interpreter of um, scripture. And, um, and so we got it backwards. And so I think on one level, some sort of a, a new church member, what I realize is that um, right, we the importance of understanding inspired writings. And I think anyone who's been married understands and gets that, you know, that sometimes, despite our be- best efforts, we, we may have good intentions and we miscommunicate or misunderstand the other person and and it can be uh, conflict, not intentional, but but and, and so I think for a new church member understanding the, the significance of inspired writings and how interpretation is important, not only for Ellen White, but also for Molecule. And so I, I like to think that one of the most important roles of a pastor is to help equip our church members how to interpret and study the Bible and Ellen White's writings in a healthy and balanced way. And so, yeah, so you're, the role of a pastor isn't to somehow be the definitive interpreter to make all your church members mirror reflections of you so then they become disciples and everyone becomes uh, a candle like that, you know, with a church member or a sweetness. That's not my goal. To make you think like me. No, oh, no. It's to make you have your own experience that you love Jesus and are enmeshed in studying the word of God. And so I think uh, that's on one level. And, and I think, and again, this is a podcast for pastors primarily. So um, I, I, I think there's a, I think most pastors, and I've, I've been a pastor long enough, that one of the biggest challenges you're always having to deal with conflict. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, a relative's uh, church, uh, again, far away from Florida where you are, and I are today. Uh, but when the church split over a burnt pot of soup, there's a small church, rural town, um, and the, the two ladies couldn't get along. And one lady dropped off a pot of soup for potluck, and the other one wouldn't get. It wasn't an accident or intentional. And literally, there are two Adventist churches today in that little town, all over a burnt pot of soup. Now, uh, a lot of church conflicts happen here. Who knows what reasons? Um, and I think. Again, in a nutshell, to a new church member um, is understanding uh, church conflict and not to just label each other or to push each other farther away and to polarize each other and to push each other towards extremism. I think one of the things that the Adventist church face even today is we, and I'll just say that I, I'm as guilty of this as anyone else, but I, I think this is the last one that we need to do a better job at listening to those who we disagree with. And to yeah. me, that, that is um, so significant. And as a pastor, we have to listen to those church members who may disagree with us and to, 
and to model that in our ministry so that other church members who may be more progressive or more traditional, uh, what would the church look like if we spent more time listening and caring for each other, especially for those who do things differently than we do? And so hmm. that is one of the great lessons of meeting, meeting, especially from a pastoral perspective. Um, I think we as a church need to do a better, a more intentional job at listening to one another. Thank you for saying that, and I, I appreciate that. Tell us a little bit about what, what are the major points? A hundred years later, what are the, some of the major points? And perhaps you've already touched on some of them, but what are the major points that as, as a Seventh-day Adventist church today, we would want the church to learn from, to come away with from this 1990 Bible conference? Yeah, great question. Uh, you know, I, I back to this issue of interpretation, of inspired writings. You know, earlier in the interview, we talked about uh, George Knight, and I remember him in class one day, and he said, there should be an 11th commandment, thou shalt not do theology against thy neighbor. And I remember that. I, I think that gets at the root of part of this. Um, I, I sense a tendency. I've seen this in Sabbath school and so many church meetings where, you know, the two sides will, you know, get ready to wage war and do theological battle. Maybe it's in Sabbath school. Maybe it's some other, you know, somewhere else where People get work walked in, and so they make all of their list of Ellen White grenades or quotes, and they lob them to the other side, and they, they do battle. And when they get done, the man who has the longest list of quotes, you know, we'll see who the last man standing is. And I think that dynamic of, again, coming back to the problem of labeling conservatives versus liberals, um, when we take those we disagree with and labels them, and then we that ourselves in opposition. And we find that we, I think there's a tendency to push ourselves into the opposite extreme. And, and the devil doesn't care which ditch he gets in, whether it's, you know, this danger of extremism, whether it's the, the fundamentalist team for the modernists. Well, either ditch is dangerous. And, and so we have to be careful of that fighting something that push ourselves to the opposite extreme. That's what happened in 1919, very clear to me. Arnold, and I think that danger still exists in the church today. So we can see, okay, there is some person that I disagree with, and so I'm going to wage war and do battle against them. Or maybe it's in my local church, or maybe it's uh, a significant uh, personality within Adventism, whatever that case may be. So how, how we relate to one another when we interpret inspired writings is is absolutely essential. And so whether um, at all levels of the church, uh, from the local Sabbath school class, church members, the pastors, the church administrators, that that we can have something that that we need to do a better job listening to one another and not do theology by what we're opposed against. And, and I find that oftentimes uh, people very quickly identify, I'm against so-and-so, I'm against this, or I disagree with somebody. But um, to have uh, the ability to truly listen and realize, well, yeah, you know, they may have something you actually agree with. Both sides in 1919 were far closer to one another than either side would have liked to admit. And yet, in spite of all of the alignment that they had and how close they were to one another, 
here they were fighting in biological battle. And so I, I think that as a church, we need to, to remember that. And we need to remember to be like Christ in all that we do and how we interpret inspired writings. Uh, I love Ellen White and Minister Keeling, how she talks about the closer we come to Christ, we become more loving and lovable Christians. And I think that's the challenge in our hermeneutics. To me, that's the litmus test of whether your hermeneutic is um, truly biblical, is that at the end of the day, it should lead uh, you and me, should lead us closer to Jesus Christ. And to the extent that we do that uh, at all levels of the church, I think we can come closer to one another too. Well, I appreciate that, Michael. And um, if, if you're okay, can I... Can I read just uh, a paragraph or two? And it's at the very end of your book. But I think in reading this, it, uh-huh. it, doesn't, it doesn't take away from the, the absolute need to read the whole book because it, it really gives, um, you really do a great job, as, as you mentioned, at flushing out um, the main points in a way that is very read, like you said, on a Saturday, Sabbath afternoon. But you mentioned here in the one of the last paragraphs, but both say if Adventists can learn from this conflict, and it's what we're talking about here, um, it might just be possible to use these insights from the past to build constructive bridges of dialogue, understanding, and possibly even healing. I love that. Um, and then you finish off by saying, in order to survive and thrive. The Adventism of the future must find the balance of the Orthodox thing that Prescott Daniels and W.C. White, which Ellen White's son, were pointing towards during and after the 1919 Bible conference. Until that time, we will continue to live in the shadows of that same dance. You, you, you just leave it there. And I love that. So... Before we close, and as you finish off here, tell us a little bit more about that. Like, if you were to continue to write a few more pages from the end of that book, what what else would you add to that? You know, how you mentioned having conversations, having dialogues. How else can we continue to move forward within our Adventism to better understand our past? Be able to see it make a brighter future, if I can say it that way. Um, and I believe the future is bright, and I believe there's great things happening, and I believe that our church is in God's hand. Um, and, uh, as you are, I, I am an avid reader and believer in uh, the spirit of prophecy, as we say in our community of faith. Um, but, but these conversations need to have. So your, your final thoughts on that, and I appreciate how you think of the book as well. Well, I don't... For- just to put it out there, I don't request to have all the answers or the solution for, for our church. I love our church. I'm committed and passionate about um, our Seventh day Adventist message and mission. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I'll, I'll leave kind of the, the, the end open because I want people to think uh, that what are the ways that, that you and me and anyone who reads and takes the time to, to thoughtfully read the, the book? To, to probe uh, each of our hearts, what, what, what can I do to create um, constructive conversations within 
uh, within Adventism. And so uh, whether that's writing or through in, in Austin or local congregation or congregation, um, you know, to, to find out uh, how we can do a better job listening to one another. So I think at all levels of the church, it applies. Uh, I think uh, I'll just point to the women's word of machine controversy because that's just the most relevant thing. Very seldom have I heard people on one side of the issue clearly articulate to, to me what the other side believes. Mm. I think that's interesting to out, uh, that, uh, you know, it's easy to always go to inspired writings and look for those things that confirm our pre-existing opinions. Uh, and, and I, you know, there was a teacher at Reading College from years ago, a little study that I read, how in, in he was teaching life and teachings, talking about the life of Christ. And he did a survey at the very beginning of the class, you know, more you an outgoing introverted or an extroverted person. And at the end, uh, you know, they get through the whole class, class in the life of Christ. Was Christ an introverted or an extroverted person? And there was like a 99% correlation. If they were introverted, they believed Jesus was introverted. If they are extroverted, they believed Jesus was extroverted. And I think this kind of makes point that uh, there's a temptation with the Bible and with Jesus to make Jesus into our own image. And I think it's Adventist is also a temptation to make only life into our own image. Right? Uh, that we make mm-hmm. what we want her to say. And we don't look at those things like uh, we may challenge us or that may show a different viewpoint than what we already uh, believe. And so we believe we're right. And so we look for validation to confirm that we're right. And so we have to look to inspired writings, whether the Bible or Ellen White, and say, okay, uh, give me an open heart and mind to be challenged that maybe there's a different way of seeing something. So to have an open heart, to have an open mind, not not just to say that, but to really deep down inside, to really um, express that, and, and especially to those that we disagree with within Adventism. Um, so I, I hope that there can be bridges of appealing uh, in conversation, I think one example of that is the 50-year anniversary conference for questions in Walkford uh, at Andrews um, back in 2007. And I had a couple of good friends of mine. Uh, and we kind of brainstormed one day and just came up with this idea. Let's have a 50th anniversary conference. And people said that can't be done because the two sides are just so opposite and so opposed to one another. Um and I felt that that was a bridge of healing because uh, the goal wasn't to make people change their minds, but to provide that intentional moment for people to listen to those who may disagree. And we closed the conference by having a communion service where we had Tom uh, and Standish um, from Heartland. We had George Knight, um, who we talked about. We had Angel Rodriguez from the Biblical Research Institute at the time. They were officiating a communion service, and that I think brought tears to my eyes to see those people gathered in the same room, watching each other speak and uh, listening, dialoguing, having. So it could be on both on the local church level, pastors can learn together different sides to listen, um, and I think on a more corporate level as a church, we need to create those moments. Uh, and I think it's not just theological in an intellectual sense, but there's also a spiritual component uh, where we can go to those uh, who disagree with in a spirit of love and civility uh, and uh, to, to come and to, to listen to those that we may 
and you interpret things differently and mix differently. Well, Michael, thank you. I think this is a deep place to conclude as well as uh, in the same fashion as you've been in the book. And um, I really appreciate your time. And um, I know we had some um, issues with Wi-Fi and what have you. And thank you for sticking through it and doing this for us. And I, I really want to encourage people um, within and outside our, our community of faith that may be listening and that will listen to buy this book. Uh, again, we're going to give, we normally uh, give a few books away. I've done that uh, many times with that I've invited authors that I've invited here on the podcast. Uh, thank you for writing the book. Thank you for your studies. Thank you for your time. Um, God continue to bless you in your endeavors to uh, highlight the history of our faith so that we can continue to move forward in the way that God in Christ would want us to. So thank you. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Well, I hope that you've been blessed and inspired to read the book if you haven't already. Thank you, thank you, Michael, for your time and patience as we recorded uh, this episode and also to you for listening. As mentioned, we are giving away a few copies of the book. Uh, the first two to email me at javier.diaz at floridaconference.com. That's J-A-V-I-E-R dot D-I-A-Z at floridaconference.com. I will send them a free uh, copy of the book. Simple as that. Don't forget to check out the show notes. There's some uh, links there that I think you'll find interesting. With that said, thanks again for listening. Until next time, God bless. Thank you for listening to this Restore Podcast. We hope you've been blessed. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss any of our inspiring episodes.